We are in the book of Luke. And uh, yes, heading down the final stretch. Been in this baby for six years. Oh, I, I wanted to uh, thank uh, uh, Dr. Cleveland for speaking last week. I just so appreciate her. Uh, she's a friend of mine, and God's just doing some very cool things. I would have been here except I got sick. I, I was out traveling on Saturday, and then I was supposed to be here to introduce her, but got uh, sick, but I'm fine now. Anyways, I just appreciate her and all the potential that is there, and uh, just seeing what God's doing in her life. But we're in the book of Luke, and we're picking up where, um, uh, where we left off on Easter. This message is all about, it's about how to deal with ambiguity. In fact, I, I want to title this message, Virtuous Ambiguity. Virtuous Ambiguity, and just so everyone knows what we're talking about. Ambiguity pertains to what is ambiguous, and what is ambiguous is this. Here's Webster's definition of ambiguous. Something that's doubtful or uncertain especially from obscurity or indistinctness. Or something is ambiguous if it's capable of being understood in two or more possible ways. How do you respond to ambiguity? This chapter that we're looking at is all about ambiguity. Now, it's a, uh, it's a story, and so we're going to bite off the whole thing as we're coming down the, uh, the final runway here of the book of Luke. Uh, so I've never preached on so many verses in my life. I think we've got 22 or 23 verses here. So hang with me. Uh, we'll read the story, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about it and what it has to do with ambiguity. So just after the resurrection, it says, Now on the same day, two of them, two random disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about several, seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside of them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Which is odd. In fact, there's a lot of oddness. A lot of ambiguity in this, in, this, in this story. Jesus just appears while they're walking. Two random folks. He just all of a sudden is next to them. And they're kept from recognizing him. Like, it seems like on purpose. Why? And then he starts asking them questions that he obviously knows the answers to because it's about him. There you go. So he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, because they're very depressed folks. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only, only a visitor to Jerusalem and don't know uh, the things that have happened there in these days? So we know the name of one of these two random disciples is Cleopas. He's just sort of a random disciple. Uh, the fact that his name is in here, most scholars, or many scholars at least, argue that whenever you find specific names given in the gospel accounts, it's because... In all probability, that story was passed on through that person. And so this is how we know about this account, because Cleopas passed it on, and his name is included in the narrative. So Jesus says, what things? As though he didn't know. They go, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and and indeed before God and all the people. Jesus says, say more, say more, tell me about this guy. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that. Apparently, they don't hope it any longer. These are depressed folks. They've given up. Uh, and what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. So it's, he's certainly dead by now. There's no hope now. It's, three, it's been three days. In addition, some of our women amazed us, or the word can be shocked us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But of course, you remember from Easter when we talked on on that account, the guys didn't believe the women. 
And that's because these guys are a bunch of sexist. Uh, first century Jewish culture was extremely sexist, and women were, had very low credibility. So the women came and said, we've seen an angel, and they, the angel said that he's risen. And usually that would be good enough proof, you would think, but these guys don't believe the women. Uh, so then some of our companions, the male guys, went to check out the tomb and found it, to our surprise, just as the women had said. <laughs> but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish, this is Jesus talking now, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his, uh, into glory? Remember, Jesus has been talking about this throughout his ministry. You guys, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and, and then I'll be resurrected and go into glory. And uh, because of their theological grid, it went in one ear and out the other. It's not what they expected. And so they, they just never hurt. They, they just couldn't receive it. So then as they're walking along, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So they're having this kind of on-the-road Bible study. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. The word there, prospoeo, it it literally means to put on a show. Pros means forward, poeo means to create something. So you put forth, uh, it, it could be translated pretend. Or to fabricate, to feign something. So he's acting like he's going to go farther. But he has no intention of doing that. What a, it's just weird. Why, why? And they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. And, but remember, they still don't know who he is. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then... In verse 31, then finally their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. So as soon as the coin drops in the slot, boop, he's gone. Strange. You don't make this stuff up. This is just odd. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened scripture to us? So they looked back at us like, we knew something was up. Our, our hearts, did you have heart burning? Yeah, so did I. Our hearts were burning. Something was going on. But now, now we understand. Their eyes were open. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. Now the disciples get it. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. It's another odd thing here because Luke hasn't given us account of Jesus' appearance to Simon. We, we, we don't read about it. This is odd. What's not odd is that now the eleven male apostles all of a sudden believe because one of their guys got it. Guy gets the vision, everyone believes. A bunch of women get the vision, none, no, no one pays any attention. <laughs> I tell you, you've come a long way, baby. <laughs> then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Pray with me here. Father, for everyone in this auditorium listening through podcasts, or television, or any other means, just pray, Lord God, that you'd be present and open our minds and our ears and our hearts to receive your word. Teach us, God, about ambiguity, uncertainty, doubtfulness in, in a world that is so uncertain. How, how to respond to this and, and um, show us your ways. Disciple us. Only you, Holy Spirit, can do that. My words can't do anything along those lines unless you're present in them, impregnating them with your authority, and writing them into our hearts. So, Father, by the power of your Spirit, be here. We surrender to you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Very odd passage. Jesus just appears while these guys are walking down the road. Uh, keeps them from recognizing who he is. 
uh, asks questions he already knows the answers to, pretends like he's going to walk on Father even though he's not, and then when they finally recognize him, he just disappears. It's odd, peculiar stuff. And the question I want to ask this morning is why? Why, why is it so weird? Why does God have to be so weird? Uh, why can't Jesus just kind of come out and say, hey, guys, it's me. Hello, I've risen from the dead. Maybe you'll recall that I talked about that a lot when I was alive. Remember? Uh, you know, why, why this circuitous route to everything? Why all this subterfuge? You know, why? It's almost like Jesus is playing the game with them. Asking them the questions he knows the answers to. He's, he's like toying with them. What is up with that? And that goes to a larger question, and that is, why does God seem to be like that a lot? At least that's my experience. Uh, why not just go, ta-da, it's me. Just come out. Why not be clear about things? Why not just make yourself self-evident, prove yourself? Why, why all this ambiguity? Why all this uncertainty? Why can't you just make it simpler? You ever wonder about that? I believe with all my heart that Jesus is Lord, and I think I've got good grounds for making an intelligent choice to believe that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God on earth, that he died and rose from the dead. Uh, and I believe that, and I, I believe I've got enough grounds to, to say I'm going to throw all my eggs in this basket and I'm going to live this way. Am I certain of it? No. No, I, we don't have certainty in this world except in mathematics and logics. Uh, and logic. Otherwise, you know, you just got to kind of call the shots as best you see them. I, I'm living this way. Uh, and so I believe Jesus is Lord, and therefore I believe the scriptures that go along with this it's interpret his life, and he endorses it. So I feel I'm on solid ground there. But outside of that, there's a lot of ambiguity. And even in that, there's a lot of ambiguity. A lot of things that are doubtful and uncertain. A lot of things that could be interpreted in different ways. The world's a very ambiguous place. A lot of questions. For example, uh, Lord, if you wanted to be clear about this, if you want everyone to believe this, uh, you know, you're omnipotent, so why don't you thin out the competition a little? <laughs> I mean, there's so many options on the table. Isn't that confusing? I, I, I believe what I believe because I've studied it and researched it and poured my life into this and, and all of that, but most people don't have time to do that. <laughs> most people, you know, you kind of got to believe whatever is the most compelling given the limited amount of evidence that you have, and no one has time to go and research all the options and weigh all the options and investigate all the considerations and say, here's my rational choice about the matter. Maybe to some degree you do that, but I mean, come on, there's a lot of options out there. You could, you could believe, instead of the Bible, you could believe the, the, the Tao Te Ching. That's my second favorite book. Or you could believe the, 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 uh, the, the Upanishads or the Vedas or, or the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran or the Book of Mormon or your Anthea book. Or, there's a ton of options out there. Who's to know which one's true? I can tell you why I believe what I believe, but, but I also you know, know that people can interpret things differently and they go in different directions with this. And by the way, if you're visiting from a, a church and this is your first time at Woodland Hills Church, uh, this may be refreshing to you if you're from a traditional church background or maybe kind of offensive and shocking to you. I want you to be forewarned uh, because we don't try to sell anything around here. Uh, you know, it's not my job to try to give you know, Jesus or the gospel, the best spin. Um, we just try to be honest. So I'm just being honest here about, you know, about ambiguity. I think there's a role for that. There's a lot of options out there. And then here's the Bible. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. I think I've got good reasons to believe that. But I have to be honest that some parts don't seem like the word of God. If I was, if I was God and writing my word, I don't think I'd put some of those stories in there. Uh, I talked to a lady this last week, um, or, or last week on, uh, on the plane, and she was telling me how she was 
decided to homeschool her child. And uh, one of the things we were going to do with homeschooling was uh, read through the Bible with her 10-year-old daughter. Thought it would be such a good mother-daughter experience to just start at the beginning of this wonderful book and just read through. <laughs> Apparently she had never done it before. Because <laughs> she got to chapter 34 <laughs> of Genesis. It's like, oh my goodness, that's a delightful story about Jacob and his brothers. And, and he had a sister who got raped by this guy in this one tribe. But then the guy in the tribe fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. But the, the Jacobs and his brothers were all so mad they wanted to kill the folks. So they went in there and said, if you want to marry the, our sister, you've got to get circumcised which as an adult is a rather painful operation. But the guys in the tribe all agree to that. And when they're circumcised and can't fight back, they go in there and slaughter the bunch of them. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> and, and, and you get to Joshua and Judges and some of the story. Honestly, this stuff is, is, it goes downhill from there. This is rated R stuff. Yeah, you don't want to read this to your 10-year-old. 18 and over kind of stuff. Now, if I was God writing a book, I think I'd leave that story out or tidy it up a little bit or something. On the other hand, there's a part of me that likes that kind of rawness. I mean, this is just humanity. This is like this rawness. It's, it's a very honest book. But, but parts of it are very odd and, and ambiguous and, and, and you know, confusing. I can see why someone would read that and say, that, that doesn't strike me as the Word of God. And then there's all the ambiguity surrounding how to interpret this thing. Uh, you know, there's, there's just different ways of interpreting almost every passage that is there. Uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of my time in original languages and studying this and, and got a PhD in it. But the PhDs disagree about how to interpret some of the stuff. And so if the PhDs disagree, well, how is the common person supposed to have a sure understanding of all of this stuff? You know, there's a lot of ambiguity, honestly. I, I, I believe uh, I'm a strong defender, as most of you know, in, in free will. I think human beings have free will and that God's sovereignty uh, allows for free will and, and he's not a micro-controlling God. You know that that's a, a belief of mine. But I also have to say that I understand why, why Calvinists interpret the Bible the way they do. I know the verses that seem to support the idea that God's c- controlling everything. There's ambiguity there. You can interpret things in more than one way. I'm a believer in adult baptism, but I understand why people baptize infants. I, I, I think Genesis 1 was supposed to be taken non-literally, but I understand why people, some people take it literally. And, and it goes on and on with all of the beliefs. There's different... This is why we've got to cut each other a lot of slack and, and, and give space for one another. We're all in process on this stuff. But it's ambiguous. If clarity is the point, well, it didn't work all that well. This is why I, I honestly can't believe that, and I could be wrong about this, but that that's the criteria for getting into heaven is passing the theology quiz accurately, <laughs> you know, getting enough right. I, I, I have trouble believing that the God revealed in Jesus Christ leverages it all on something as happenstance as what, the, what, what is the particular thing that you believe. Because what you believe is strongly influenced, at least. And I believe in rationality and I believe in objective truth. I'm not a postmodern relativist, if you know what that is. But, but, but you have to agree that... What you believe is strongly influenced by where you're born and who you're born to and how you're raised and what your culture is and what experiences you go through and what your personality profile is and a bunch of other things. And only God can sort all that out at the end. Unless I'm wrong about this. <laughs> this is a lot of ambiguity. A lot of ambiguity. And there are people I know who, for whom nothing is ambiguous. Uh, some of you, we all know folks like that. Uh, everything is perfectly clear. In fact, everything is self-evident. Uh, all the evidence points in, their, in the direction of their correctness. You know folks like that? It's, everything is obvious. Everything is obvious. These are the folks who you can't even really try to have a rational argument with them because their map is the territory. Uh, you know, their, their interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. To disagree with their interpretation of the Bible is to disagree with the Word of God. 
You know, either you believe the word or you don't, which means either you believe my interpretation of it or you don't, but they don't even realize that they're interpreting, interpreting the thing. One person said to me, I don't interpret the Bible, I just read it. Well, no. See, it's... And God bless these folks, uh, but God help you if you're married to one of them, because <laughs> it makes conversations kind of hard. And Lord, protect us from these people, because these are the ones who can do very strange things like drive uh, planes into towers and stuff. And these are the fundamentalists. These are, are folks that the world, everything's so clear. I mean, you've got to be pretty clear about stuff to kill people in the name of your religion. Uh, we could use a little bit of ambiguity and, 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 and humility in, our, in terms of what we claim that we know. My experience is that most of the folks who, for whom everything is obvious, you just don't read very much. It's easy to believe that you're absolutely right when you've never read the other side. At least never even tried to understand the other side. A lot of these folks can, can be just simple. Uh, and a lot of these folks are insecure. That's, they impose certainty on stuff because they need to. Uh, they're, they're making an idol of their certainty. And they can't deal with the, the ambiguous world. We talked a little bit about that in the series that we did at the beginning of this year on faith and, and, and doubt. Most of the people who are listening to this message or who will listen to it uh, are, are aware of and accept that the world can be and the Bible can be and God can be ambiguous. Uh, mainly because folks for, who need certainty uh, on, on everything don't tend to hang around all that long here. I don't know why. I can't figure that out. But... <laughs> We deal with ambiguity. We acknowledge that things can be taken a different way. There's a lot of things that are doubtful and uncertain. The center of our faith, you know, we're at least certain enough to base our life on it, but we acknowledge that there's a lot of ambiguity uh, along the way. The passage that we're looking at now, yes, I'm going to get to this passage. This, this passage is all about that and how to respond to ambiguity. Some of the ambiguity in our life, maybe a lot of it, is due to the fact that we live in a fallen world where there's spiritual oppression. Right? And, and, and so there's fogginess all over the place. There's deception all over the place. And, and, and I'm sure that if we weren't in a fallen world, we'd see things a whole lot clearer. Truth would be more self-evident. Some of the ambiguity is because of our own sin and stuff that we've absorbed, simple stuff we've absorbed from our culture. Like these men, they should have believed in the resurrection. Jesus had been talking about that throughout his ministry. Uh, the tomb was empty. And the women had had a vision of, of angels had appeared to them, and they reported that to these disciples. But the disciples didn't believe because they had a, a, a theology where they had God in a box and Jesus wasn't fitting into their box, and because of their prejudice. They were prejudiced against these women. And anytime we've got prejudice in our life, whether it's about women or about race or about nationality or whatever, it's going to fog up your head. You're not going to see things very straight. And anytime we try to put God in a box... Uh, it's going to fog up our head. Because when God doesn't operate according to our little set theology, oh, we're, we're all confused. We're discouraged. These, folk, these folks had lost all their hope because of that. So some of the ambiguity is because of the fallen world. Some of the ambiguity is because of stuff in our own life. But some of the ambiguity, this passage teaches us, some of the ambiguity is, is on purpose. God's purpose. Or at least he uses the ambiguity for a good purpose. What we're going to see here in the next 20 minutes is he uses it to motivate us to reach up, to reach out, to reach in. Let's look at each one of these. Reaching out. Jesus, by not letting them recognize who he was. Jesus, by asking questions he already knows the answers to. Jesus, by virtue of pretending to walk on, uh, even though he didn't intend to do that, all that pretense was there as a way of eliciting something from them. He was saying, come on, pull on me a little bit. Or he was pulling something out of them. Look for me, seek for me. Uh, he, he was, he, he was, it was a strategy to grow them in a certain direction. 
He was saying, come on, look for me. Come and find me. In fact, this is a theme you find throughout Jesus' ministry. It's a theme you find throughout the Bible. Seek and you shall find. We're supposed to seek. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You're supposed to knock. Ask and it will be given to you. We need to ask. There's ambiguity there as a way of motivating us to press through it. If everything was just self-evident, it would not require anything on our part to be pursuing God. The thing about ambiguity is it is, to some of us, more than others maybe, it's irritating. I could use a little less mystery. I, could, I would like a little more answers. But the way my brain is wired is I get disturbed by cognitive dissonance. When ideas don't match up, it bothers me. And there's a gift part of that because it means I spend a lot of time working through ideas. But there's a curse part of it uh, because it can drive you crazy when there is no resolution to some stuff. And, and so it's irritating. And we wish that things were clearer and less confusing. But on the other hand, Ambiguity, if we respond the way God wants us to respond to it, is profoundly helpful. It grows us. It develops us. We sometimes assume that the purpose of life is to be happy and to be content. But from God's perspective, that's not the purpose. No, the purpose is to grow, to be a certain kind of a person. The whole reason for our life, uh, the whole purpose for this epic that we're in, and all of its ambiguity and confusion, is for us to develop the capacity to see God and the capacity to love God and the capacity to be loved by God and the capacity to love ourselves the way God loves us and the capacity to love others the way God loves us and the capacity to steward the animal kingdom and the earth the way God has commanded us to to do that. Uh, It's to develop character. The purpose of this life is to become a kingdom person. In our act, the way that we think and the way that we feel and the, and the, the way that we respond and interact with one another to have, have, have characters that are fit to enter into the kingdom because nothing that's not compatible with God will enter into the kingdom. That's the purpose, is to grow right here and right now. And that, I don't believe, can just be downloaded like a computer program. Push the button, boom, there it is. No, then we would be automatons, we'd be mannequins, we'd be Stepford wife kingdom people. It's something we've got to learn, we've got to grow, and that requires stretching and straining and some effort. It's God's grace reaching down into our lives and causing in us, as this passage says, a burning heart, a burning heart that now pants after God, seeks for God, presses through the ambiguity. The ambiguity in part is there to cause us to reach up toward God and to seek for God. Uh, and and, and to to grow in our stretching. It keeps us humble, and it keeps us hungry. So it's about reaching up. Second thing is the ambiguity is there to reach out, to motivate us to reach out. Jesus pretends like he's going to keep on walking. Just going this way, you guys. Because he wants them to go, don't, no, stay with us. He wants them to implore him to stay. Now remember, at this point, They don't know that it's Jesus. To them, it's a stranger. And so, in this passage, Jesus wants them to invite the stranger in. It's when they invite the stranger in and share a meal with the stranger and give him a place to stay that night. Because in the ancient world, walking alone at night is a dangerous thing. So they're protecting this guy. It's when they do that that the light goes on and now they recognize the stranger to be Jesus. I wouldn't make too much of this were not for the fact that this passage sounds a lot or echoes some of Jesus' other teachings. Like in Matthew 25, on the Day of Judgment. Jesus is talking, he's the judge, and there's all of humanity in front of him. And some are to go into the kingdom of God, and some aren't. And the ones who are, the criteria is this. 
Jesus says, did you visit me when I was in prison? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you give me a place to stay when I was out in the street? Did you welcome in the stranger? And that says something. A person's willingness to do that reflects a relationship they have with God. Even though a lot of the people, in fact, all the people that he's talking to, they didn't know this. They were like, when did we see you? When did we visit you in prison? We didn't know we were doing that. But Jesus says, insofar as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Um, and, and so Jesus identifies with the outsider, the stranger. And it's when we invite others in. What the passage is telling us is that one of the ways to press through ambiguity, one of the ways to grow in terms of our ability to recognize the face of Jesus is by having a heart for the outsider, for the poor, for those who are, who are friendless, for those who are judged, for those who are in prison. And to spend our life ministering to these folks and reaching out and not just hoarding our own resources. One of the ways we get clear is by obeying God and serving others. This is why I believe, follow me on this, why I believe that the moment of recognition comes when they are, are, are celebrating the sign of the covenant. The stranger comes in and he breaks bread and has the cup there. And the words that Luke uses are the very words that are used of Jesus' last supper. When Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave, after giving thanks and said, this is my body which is to be broken for you. And then he took the cup and said, this cup is my blood which is to be shed for you. That's the sign of the covenant. Jesus says, whenever you do this, do it in, in memory of me. Whenever God makes a covenant throughout the Bible, he gives us a sign to, re, to reenact it. So the stranger reenacts the sign so that they will remember. And the sign works because they remember. And now they get it. Now they get it. And the purpose of the sign is to remind them of the covenant they have with God, which is a reminder of the kind of God they're in covenant with, which is also a reminder of the kind of life we're to live because we're in covenant. And it's all centered on the cross, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And so when Jesus shares this bread and this cup, they no longer see him just as a stranger. They see him as, as Jesus. Because now they remember who the true God is. He's the God who didn't fit into their little nationalistic, self-serving box. He's a God, rather, who gives his life away. A God who dies on the cross for his enemies. A God who prays, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. A God who allows his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. And we are called to be the same. We are called to be a people who are willing to have our bodies broken and our blood shed for our worst enemies. We're called to be a people who live not not trying to just protect ourselves and living out of our own, uh, hoarding our own resources. But we're to be a people who look like, love like, serve like Jesus and who give ourselves away. We're to be a people, in other words, who go out of our way to visit the prisoner, the person who's been forgotten by society, who serve the poor, who serve the homeless, who, 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 who do what they can to, to provide homes for folks and clothing for those who don't have clothing and so on and so on. So they do the sign of the covenant and now the folks get it. And the takeaway point for us is to say it's when we walk in obedience to the terms of the covenant and service to others that we gain clarity. The light goes on. We develop our capacity to see Jesus when we can, as Saint Tre- Mother Teresa said, and we see his face in the face of the poor. Here's, here's, here's something that baffles me sometimes. We, just because of some of our cultural assumptions about the value of information, we think we find God always at the bottom of a text. Uh, you know, we, we, or you find, we find God in some revival. You, you have people, they call them the God chasers. There's a book written by this name, God Chasers. What they do is it's, like, it's sort of like uh, Julia Roberts in that movie, Eat, Pray, Love. To find God or to find truth, you travel around the world in search of God. I, I didn't see the movie, but I heard it's about that. Is that right? 
Eat, pray, love. And I guess it's an okay movie. You travel all over the world trying to find truth, trying to find God, trying to find yourself, whatever. Uh, and it's fine, bless her. Um, but you have people chasing revivals. You know, uh, what about people getting gold teeth over there or podium splitting over there? And they're always chasing revivals. Oh, we have people who just spend a lot of time in Bible studies. I love Bible studies. I don't want everyone to say I don't love Bible. I love Bible studies. Does Greg Boyd love Bible studies? Yeah. I love Bible studies. <laughs> but here's the thing. We think we're going to find God. And Jesus said this to the Pharisees. You think you're going to find God by just searching the scriptures? You know, you've know, you got to have a heart that's in the right place to get anything out of this. So but if we could just, like, what's the true meaning of this verse? Maybe God's in there. I'll know God better if I can just parse this uh, Greek verb, if I can just know the, the historical context of this passage. And so we have Bible studies, and we just keep our noses in the book. And I love Bible studies. Remember, I do love Bible studies. But here's the, if you want to find God, he tells us where he hangs out. What's crazy is you have all these people, people doing Bible studies, but they're not doing any of the stuff that the Lord tells us to do. And you're looking for God in the Bible, but he tells us where he hangs out. And he hangs out in prison. And he hangs out among the judged. He hangs out among the losers of society. He hangs out among the oppressed of society. If you want to know where God's hanging out, just look at the Pharisees and, and look at who they're sneering at. That's a good, just follow, follow their sneer. Oh, they're sneering at those folks. They must be the ones, okay, we've got to start serving these folks. Uh, it, it, to find God, you don't have to go all over the planet. You don't need a whole lot of clarity. You, can, you don't need a, to, to disambiguate uh, uh, this passage. Serve him in looking for the poor and serving the poor and in visiting those who are in prison. And I'm all for Bible studies, but I honestly, I believe that for every hour you spend in a Bible study with others, spend an hour uh, at a homeless shelter or, or at a soup kitchen or, or doing something to be serving others because that's where we push through the ambiguity. Clarity comes when we do the terms of the covenant which is all about living a Christ-like uh, uh, life that, that bleeds, that bleeds for others. So the ambiguity is there to inspire us to reach up. The ambiguity is there to inspire us to reach out. And finally, the ambiguity is there to inspire us to reach in. They invite the stranger in. And as soon as they invite him in, he's no longer just a stranger. Now they're sharing a meal together. And now they're having fellowship together. And boom, the light goes on. Um... It's not that. It's not that the bread. You know, they, they, they break the bread, they have the cup, and all of a sudden they recognize Jesus. But it's not that there's anything magical about the bread or there's anything magical about the cup. Like, here's the clarity pill. Take it. All of a sudden you'll see Jesus. No, no. In fact, communion wasn't meant to be this sort of separate ritual thing. We've made it that, but initially it wasn't that. Now, now follow me on this. Uh, when Jesus said, this is my cup... Uh, this cup is my blood which is shed, and this bread is the, my body that's broken. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remember, memory of me. He wasn't giving us a ritual. He was giving us a sign of the covenant. But he was, when he said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, the this was a meal. They were having a meal. Okay, so the intention was, what Jesus was saying is, when you get together and have a meal... Use that as an occasion to remember my body which was broken for you and my blood which was shed for you and use it therefore as an occasion to remember how you're supposed to live. Let every meal you share together be a reminder of who Jesus is and, and who, who, who you're called to be. And a meal in the first century was, was simply a way of having community. It, it, it was a way of saying, you are, I share life with you. That's why the, Jesus' meals with the prostitutes and the tax collectors were so scandalous. Because he's really saying, I do life with these, these kind of folks. 
So Jesus is saying when we come together and have community, when we break bread together, uh, that is to be a reminder of the covenant. Um, it, it, it's, what we do is in a large group when we have communion. In fact, what almost every church does when, we, when you have communion with a large group of people, and you take a little piece of bread and, and, a, and a little bit of, a, the, the, of juice. It's really a symbol of the sign of the covenant. Because um, no one gets full on that. <laughs> so, I, I have never had, had a person walk out of communion going, man, my stuff. <laughs> well, I was... No, no, it's a little, it's a symbol. It's, a, it's an as if. And that's fine because that's just where we're at right now. But it's also why we encourage kingdom folks uh, to get together with your loved ones, to get together with friends and those you serve with, and to, make, to, to have communion together as a small group, uh, to, to share it in, in more intimate settings with a full meal. That's what it was intended to do. The point now, though, is this, that what this passage reveals is that it's when we come together and break bread, it's when we come together and do community, it's when we come together and serve one another and share life together, that we put ourselves in a position where we can begin to grow in our capacity to see Jesus. We push through ambiguity by reaching in. We push through ambiguity and gain clarity on who God is and what his will is for our life and things like that. When we, when we fight the tendency of our culture to go solo, to do it alone, to live our own little individual lives. We, we, we put ourselves in a position where we come to know God more fully and come to understand things better. When we serve with other people, when we eat with other people, when we have fun with other people, when we break bread with other people, when we worship with other people, when we share life and resources with other people, when we do with one another's, 57 one another's of the New Testament, when we do that with one another, well now, see, we're walking in obedience to the covenant and clarity happens. If we're living lives that are just individual, all by, you know, this little bedside Baptist kind of stuff. Me and Jesus, tight, don't need anyone else. If you're living life that way, or you're living life where maybe you're an expert on the, on the Bible, but you're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not flowing over with others. You're not serving the poor and, and serving those uh, who, are, who, who maybe don't have the privileges that you have. Uh, or if you're spending your life where you're not just panting after God, you're in a world where you're going to have ambiguity all around you. You're not going to grow the way God calls us to grow. And develop the kind of capacities that God wants to develop in us. And that's the purpose for everything right there. We have all this ambiguity around us. Don't just give up and say, oh, I guess it's all mystery. That, 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 that's defeating the purpose as well. We're supposed to stay hungry. There's something burning in us if we'll pay attention to what's inside of us. These disciples, they could have walked away. Their hearts were burning and something said, invite that stranger in. But they could have said, nah, you know what, I'm kind of tired. Let's just go home and watch television. Would have been more, no, but see, they responded rightly to that burning in their heart. That's why they came to recognize Jesus. So my ending question is this. Holy Spirit, help us here. Give us clarity on this one point. Where do you have heart burn? Where do you have heart burn towards? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I encourage you right now just to surrender your life to him and start walking in a Jesus way and come up and tell these folks... Uh, and, and, and get started on, on the kingdom walk. If you are a disciple of Jesus, one who submitted to Jesus, I guarantee you, unless you're absolutely perfect, which I highly doubt, there's, there, there is, if you'll listen to it, uh, something burning in your heart. And it's about the next step that you're supposed to take. The next step. Pressing through ambiguity and growing towards the Lord. And maybe God is, is putting on your heart a passion to reach up more passionately, to spend more time alone with Him. And in prayer and, 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 and in worship. Or maybe that God is, if you listen to it, he's, he, he's putting on your heart some kind of a, a burning for service. 
Uh, you're, sometimes we feel the burning in our heart as, as, as a kind of boredom. We get bored with where we're at. And that's a sign that, you know, it's something's supposed to change. If you're bored with where you're at, you're just watching too much television, or you didn't know, don't, don't know what to do with your time, well, if you listen, God will, he needs that time. <laughs> There's people who need that time. And, and it may be, you know, volunteering at the Dorothy Day Center or, or helping out with the children's church here or, 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 or getting on the, 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 the table, our, our internet community, and, and talking with others about uh, how they're serving and, and, and just kind of forming groups that will go and, and uh, minister at different places. God will lead you if you listen to it. All of us have a role there. And it may be also about reaching in, about community. Maybe you've been one of these solo American Christians and God is saying, come on. You're called to be part of the bride, sharing life with others. We grow in our capacity to see and receive God's love as we reach up, as we reach out, as we reach in. Follow your heart. He'll lead you. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do that, I would like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you are here with any need whatsoever that you need to have prayed for, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. If you want to start a Jesus walk uh, this morning, come up and talk with these folks. If you're visiting, stop at the hub and and get some information about the church. I close with this prayer. Father, uh, make the fire burn. Give us heartburn. That we pursue you more passionately, that we reach out and serve others more passionately, that we reach in and grow in community more passionately. As we seek to have every part of our life line up with your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's kingdom people said. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. Amen.